0: sure you're in fellowship. Use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that we have the freedom in this country still to gather together to worship You, to teach Your Word without fear of government interference or reprisal. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide these freedoms for us. We pray for a president. We pray for his advisors. We pray that that they would have wisdom and that you would put in his path those who understand uh, reality, history as it is, in terms of your plan and not as so many people wish it were. Father, we pray for this church, for their search for a pastor. We pray that you would give them patience, perseverance, and a unwavering devotion to Your Word in the process. Father, now as we study Your Word, we pray that You'd challenge us with the things we learned this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to the Old Testament tonight, so turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're going to spend some time the next couple of nights... On Elijah. Elijah. Now, we'll really start in the New Testament, but you don't need to turn there. James 5 talks about Elijah. Elijah was one of the most significant prophets in the Old Testament. Now, when most of us think of prophets in the Old Testament, what we think about are the main prophets, the main writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, people like that. But the Old Testament also teaches us that there were non-writing prophets, like Abraham, who was called a prophet, and uh, Nathan, uh, Gad, uh, Enoch, Noah were non-writing prophets. But then we have prophets like Elijah. And of all the prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah has more said about him in his life than, than everyone else other than Moses, Moses, of course, is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Elijah's career is described in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, he is one of the most significant prophets in the Old Testament. He stood against a culture that had already given itself over to idolatry, to moral relativism, They worshipped at the altar of the Baals and the Ashtoreth. This was uh, sexual uh, licentiousness. It was temple and ritual prostitution. And the culture in Israel had given itself over completely to the official paganism of its time. It was one of the darkest periods in all of the Old Testament and it's a time not unlike our own in terms of the culture and the values they even at times took these idols that they had like when Jeroboam the 1st of the northern king the first king when the when the north split from the south he he constructed a, an idol and it was an, another calf and he said this is Yahweh So it was not unlike today where you have people constructing basically false concepts of the God of the Bible and then saying that's the God of the Bible. It was a period when there were very, very few in the northern kingdom of Israel that had any devotion to the truth, any devotion to Yahweh. In fact, as we'll see if we get that far... uh, Elijah got so despondent after his great victory on Mount Carmel that he just caved into to despair and depression and thought that he was the only one left who stood for the truth. And see, we always get in trouble because there's never only one left. I mean, all of the Scripture, the only time there was only one left, there were only eight left. And that was Noah and his family. So there's never just one. But this is what happens when we get our eyes on self instead of our eyes on God. Now, about 30 years ago now, I was uh, made my first little trip, first of thousands of little trips, into a Christian bookstore. And I was still in college. I was finishing up my junior year looking for Just some information. I knew I didn't know much about the Old Testament like most Christians. And I ran across a book called Elijah, a Man of Like Nature, written by a guy named Theodore Epp. And those of you who may have listened to Christian radio, I know there's very little around here. But there's been a a, a Bible broadcast, Bible teaching broadcast for decades that Theodore Epp began back in the 30s, I believe, called Back to the Bible and he wrote a number of little books on biographies of Old Testament figures and I read that book and it was just tremendous because the one thing we learn about Elijah in spite of all these great things that he does I mean here he gets out on Mount Carmel and he challenges all the prophets of Baal and he is such a public figure and he is... He is called upon to have such a public role in the history of Israel. And the miracles that are performed, we think this guy is just, oh, I could never be anything like him. I don't care what the Bible says, that, that the greatest Old Testament prophet is not a, a, as great as the least of the church-age believers. We just don't think we could ever be called upon to have an impact like Elijah had. And then you run across James five seventeen. And James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. One thing we want to focus on here is he's he's just a human being like the rest of us. The only thing that made a difference between Elijah and us is the specific role that God had for him, and that he had all the capacity to trust God that you and I have, and it's not our power; it's God's power. It's never our solution, never the human solution. It's always God's solution. And at times we are tempted to despair. We're tempted to become despondent. We're tempted to think it's all—it's uh, just us fighting the world. Especially when you're a congregation and you're looking for a pastor, because we live in an era today that's—that's that's not as bad as it was in the northern kingdom in the ninth century bc but it's almost as bad and we live in an era when it's very difficult to find men who stand for the truth and we need to be very thankful that we live in an age when there are the all the wonderful things that we have like uh, airplanes so uh, pastors like dan and charlie can fly up here we've got dvds and lcd projectors and all these great things so that uh, you have the Word of God. God has not left anyone here wanting or lacking for solid spiritual food. And He always provides, and it's always in His timing. So there has to be that perseverance, and that's what James 5 is all about. Those of you who were here seven years ago when I first came, remember that we went through James, and it concludes in James 5 with this illustration from Elijah who illustrates the main principle in the whole book of James which is the importance of perseverance in the midst of testing and looking for a pastor is just another test somebody recently sent me some bumper stickers I should have brought some with me and it says life is an open book test and that's right and it's just another test you know every time something happens whatever it is i got a guy in my church, he says, Pastor, it's just another test. That's all it is. And we have one test after another. So Elijah is that picture of perseverance and endurance in the midst of testing. He was a man with a nature like ours. Now, one of the things that's emphasized here in James 5.17 is that he prayed. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Now, We're not told about that in 1 Kings 17. We're not told that he prayed at all, and we'll come back to that as we wrap up our study. But what we see is he is the only person who took the initiative, and I'm sure he did it under the leadership of God, the only person to take the initiative to take a stand against the evil that was taking over in the northern kingdom. He stood his ground against Ahab who was one of the most powerful political figures and military figures in the history of the northern kingdom. And he performed miracles. He raised the widow's son from the dead and, and many other things. But what we also see is that that he's just like the rest of us. Even though he had these opportunities of tremendous trust and faith in the Lord and tremendous victory, Afterward, he just caved into self absorption and self pity and despair and despondency. And he got his eyes off of God and put his eyes on self and on circumstances, thought that God forgot all about him and that it was a lost cause. And so we can learn a lot of lessons from him. A couple of things we ought to remind ourselves of before we get started, just by way of introduction. First of all, we have to remember that as long as we are trusting God, there's no hopeless situations. That's one of the lessons we'll see here. Whether it's a personal crisis, whether it's a health crisis, finances, romance, education, marriage, whatever the situation may be, God is always the same God. He always provides sufficient grace and it's never a time to give up or despair just because we don't see the big picture or understand all the details. Same thing in a pastor search. God is going to provide. No one here is going hungry spiritually. Second thing we recognize is that we must never think that we stand alone, that we're the only church that has truth. We're the only people that have it. Nobody else really teaches the Word. There are a lot of folks out there, who are teaching the Word. It's just that they're not very prominent. Third lesson we we see in this this study is that all of our tests are multi-layered tests. That means God provides circumstances with all kinds of facets to Him to test us in terms of different skills, faith rest drill, grace orientation, personal love for God. And He always designs those tests just with us in mind. A fourth thing we need to recognize is that when we do the right thing the right way, the consequences may not be what we originally intended. Now that's an important thing to understand. When you do the right thing the right way, the consequences may not be what you intended. I am sure that when Elijah did the right thing and confronted Ahab, And he did it the right way on the basis of the Word of God. That he had no idea that he was going to spend the next couple of years eating food out of a raven's mouth. And that he was probably going to get just enough food to keep him alive, but he wasn't going to be putting any extra weight on his bones. He did the right thing, but he had to go through the same three and a half years of famine that everybody else in the northern kingdom had to go through. He did the right thing the right way, but that doesn't mean that he had a special level of prosperity or blessing in that sense, like we so often think today. People just want to think of blessing in in this culture in terms of what you have, in terms of finances, in terms of money, in terms of physical, material possessions. And then a fifth introductory principle is that we have to realize that when a nation is under divine discipline, even the mature believers, even the advancing believers, even the believers who are making all the right decisions, are going to suffer by association. And that's part of what we're going through now. We live in a time not of physical drought, although we only got .8 inches in June in terms of rain in Houston, which is the record. It's never been that low. So who knows, we're in for a long, dry summer down there. But we may not be going through a period of drought and depression. And believe me, when they had these three and a half years of drought in the northern kingdom as a result of this divine discipline, it made the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl of the 30s, though that's something most of you read about in history books, myself included, it made that look very mild in comparison to the economic catastrophe in this purely agrarian culture of the northern kingdom. And all the 7,000, remember the story, Elijah is going to moan and groan about being the only one, and God says, but I have 7,000 that didn't bow the knee. And all 7,000 had to go through that divine discipline along with all the tens of thousands of Baal-worshipping, reversionistic, pagan unbelievers in the northern kingdom. Okay, let's get into 1 Kings 17.1. In 1 Kings 17.1, we have this dramatic entrance of Elijah the Tishbite, said to be of the inhabitants or the settlers of Gilead. We don't know anything else about him. He just sort of jumps onto the scene. And he, it's, it's this dramatic scene. Elijah the Tishbite says to Ahab, and you think, what were the circumstances here? He just comes up to Ahab out of the crowd, or he walks into the palace, into the king's palace that was built in, in Samaria. What does he do? And he comes right into the king's presence, and he has the unmitigated gall and spiritual courage to pronounce a judgment, a divine judgment, on the northern kingdom. We don't know where he came from other than saying that he is a Tishbite, and we don't know really what that means, and that he had lived in Gilead for a while. We don't know where he was born. We don't know what tribe he was from. We don't know if he was old, young. He probably wasn't married because uh, with all the things that happened in his life, there is no indication that he was Ever married. He just shows up on the scene. But his name is particularly informative. The name Elijah has that last syllable, J-A-H, which is the first syllable in the name for God, the personal name for God associated with that covenant that God gave to Israel, uh, the Mosaic Covenant. Yahweh was particularly attached to that particular covenant And so that last part references Yahweh's name. El is the Hebrew generic name for God. And that I is a suffix that indicates first person. So Elijah means my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. So his name has a profound theological significance. He just bursts on the stage of history, no prelude, no introduction, and then as rapidly as he steps into the public arena with this pronouncement, he turns away and walks off and disappears into the desert for about a year and a half or so in the desert. Then he's moved to another location. But before we get to that, we need to get a little background, which we pick up in the previous chapter. So just look back a few verses to First Kings 16, verse 29. There we're told in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's down in the south, remember what happened in Israel was that the kingdom after Solomon's death, the kingdom that was united under Saul, David, and Solomon, split. It split because Solomon's son would not listen to the wise older men in the nation, and they, they, uh, the wise older men said to re- relax the taxation. And the young men said, well, let's get even more money out of the people, sort of like most politicians today think that your money is their money and they're a lot wiser in being able to spend your money than you are. So they wanted to increase taxation. One of the first tax revolts in history occurred. And an upstart start, who had been kind of a pain in the rear in Solomon's administration named Jeroboam, who was from the north, came back, had been exiled. Solomon kicked him out. He went into exile to Egypt. He came back from Egypt, led a tax revolt against Rehoboam, and established a ten nation confederacy, ten tribe confederacy in the north, and established a new nation, the northern kingdom of Israel. And in the south, they were the southern kingdom of Judah. You had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So Asa is the king in the south, and Omri has been the king in the north. And in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And now we get the divine commentary right up front. On Ahab's reign. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now if you haven't studied what they did before him, that may not mean as much to you, but it's a tremendous statement. He was the worst king and all the kings in the north were bad. Not one of them was good. Verse 31. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, what does that mean? Well, I mentioned Jeroboam's sin earlier. Jeroboam came back from exile, led this tax revolt, but he recognized that, that you're not going to have a cohesive nation if everybody in the north at every one of these festivals in the Jewish calendar has to go traipsing back down to Jerusalem to worship in Jerusalem. It won't be long before they're going to want to get all back together again. So he recognized that he had to create a separate religious system in the north. So what he did was he constructed a calf to worship and said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. He was one of the first politicians to use historical revisionism in order to establish his place in history. My, how modern. See, we see this all the time. We got a great example of it just yesterday when the uh, Supreme Court made this idiotic decision about not allow. you can have the Ten Commandments out front, but you can't have them inside. What a bunch of idiots. They're historically ignorant and they want to rewrite the history of the United States And that's historical revisionism, and we're getting it over and over and over again. And so they're just following in the same tracks. They're walking in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Well, as if Ahab thought it was a trivial thing, he got even worse. He took a wife. Now, I don't know of too many good words to describe Uh, Jezebel, and I'd probably shock you if I used the normal terminology, but this is one of the most evil women in in the Old Testament. She's only surpassed by her daughter, the progeny of Ahab and Jezebel. took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So he not only goes along with the idolatry that Jeroboam introduced, but he takes it a lot further. Now let's get some background on Ahab. First of all, Ahab ruled the northern kingdom from 871 to 852 B.C. From 871 to 852 B.C. Now if you think about it, it's 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom is finally wiped out by the Assyrians. So that's only another what, uh, 70 years or so, 75 years, uh, from 852 to 872, 80 years, is that what it is? I'm no good with math, 70, 80 years. See, where's Charlie when you need him? Uh, so it's not long. So you can already see that the northern kingdom has gotten almost as bad as they've ever been. He is the son of Omri, who was a famous general as well as a king. Uh, Omri was well known. We know him from some archaeological uh, finds. There's a stele that was erected by King Misha of the Moabites in commemoration of his being defeated by Omri. There's also some various uh, tablets uh, among the Assyrian uh, tablets that mention Omri. So we know that he was a historical figure and he was well known by his enemies. The great evil that Omri... Uh, that Omri enacted was that for political reasons he entered into an alliance with the Phoenicians and to seal that alliance as has happened so often through history the best way to seal a treaty is for your son or daughter to marry the son or daughter of the king of the country you're making the treaty with so he married Ahab off to Jezebel and Jezebel was daughter of the Phoenician king who was also the high priest of Baal and Phoenicia was the center of Baal worship and Baalism and the worship of the Asherah was the worst form of sexual degeneracy and fertility worship and the phallic cult in the ancient world. The Phoenicians were basically a mix of Hittites and Canaanites and a few others. A lot of the Canaanites that survived the uh, holy war of Joshua escaped to Phoenicia. Ahab is then the eighth king of Israel, the eighth king of the northern kingdom. So that's our second point. Third point has to do with the, what's called the Amri dynasty. There are four generations, descendants from Omri, who are kings in the north. And what you see throughout the book of Kings is a phrase that describes every single king. You just get this chorus. You know how it is when you sing a hymn, you sing a verse, you sing the same chorus. You sing the verse, you sing the same chorus. You sing the verse. Well, all the way through the northern kingdom, it talks about the king, and then everyone concludes with the same verse. And the verse says, "...and and so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of Jeroboam, and in the sin with which he made Israel to sin." And you just see it again and again and again. But as we see with Ahab, he took it a step further. So each king of Israel followed in the sinful rebellion of Jeroboam. But the statement about Omri also goes a bit further. In 1 Kings 16, verse 25, we read, But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. So Omri is worse than the six kings that are in front of him. and It is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now if you read that phrase... And without studying the Old Testament, you're going to get confused because the way we use evil is in all kinds of things. We talk about the evil that takes place in in a drug culture and what the evil that goes on uh, in some parts of our country. We can look at uh, uh, areas in the country that are, are involved in white slavery and we say that that's evil. And we can talk about all kinds of different things as evil. We can talk about all kinds of abuses as evil. But the way this word is used throughout Kings and Chronicles is to refer to idolatry and the introduction of religion into the northern kingdom. Not the worship of Yahweh, which is a relationship, but the worship, uh, but the introduction of idolatry and religion. So Omri is worse at it than all of his pre- predecessors, and he has a son that's, that's Ahab, and Ahab is even worse. Than Omri. Well, there's an important principle here, and that is that people, churches, and nations get the leaders they deserve. And they deserve the leaders that they get. And you think about that in terms of business, think about it in terms of government, and think about it in terms of churches. Just to let you know, I was thinking the other day, and of the top ten pastors that I, could, that I thought of that are nationally known... There's only one that I thought of that's a dispensationalist and believes in a free grace gospel. Only one. Most of the ones that you hear about are into lordship salvation, or they're not, in, that you can't ever find a statement of the gospel. Uh, this guy down in Houston that you see on TV all the time that's around the corner from us, well, you just never hear him say anything about the gospel. Of course, on TV, they never show all the. People speaking in tongues. They never show you all the healings that are going on in the back room. While he's preaching on Sunday morning, his mom is in the back room having her healing service, casting out all the demons, but they don't want to put that on TV. So you just have this false gospel that's everywhere. And unfortunately, we're getting the leaders we deserve, and we deserve those leaders. However, there are dozens, if not hundreds of pastors of small churches like Preston City Bible Church and West Houston Bible Church and Spokane Bible Church and Front Range Bible Church in Denver and, and uh, any number of other churches and some we don't know about. I was listening to a guy the other day that, that uh, was an assistant pastor at a church that I did a brief internship at up in Denton when I was in seminary and he was doing a fantastic job just teaching the Word in a very solid way and so there are many like the 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal and they're not in the limelight they're unknown to most people except for God but they're the ones who are providing the sound teaching to provide and produce maturity for positive believers in this world now that's our third point the Amri dynasty led the nation into its worst form of degeneracy Fourth point, Ahab married the, one of the most beautiful women of his day. She was not only beautiful, but she was more intelligent than he. he was, she was craftier than he. She was his nemesis. There was always a conflict in their marriage. She was smart. She was possibly demon-possessed. And she was most likely one of the most evil women who ever lived. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, in the letter to the church at Thyatira, the evil that's going on there is said to be because they tolerate the woman Jezebel. And she led the nation into some of the worst degeneracy and perversion in all of history. She, came, she was a true product, though, of her father's court. She was trained in the intense... Machiavellian intrigue of the Phoenician court. She was a fanatical worshiper and missionary for the worship of Baal and the Asherah. She was clearly demon influenced, if not demon possessed. We have to remember that at that time, Phoenicia was one of the great maritime powers. They were a racial mix of Philistines, Greek sea peoples, Canaanites, Hittites, and a number of other groups. And they mastered the sea, and they sent their ships to to what to Tarshish, which is modern Spain, and there's evidence that they went to Britain. And they sailed all the way around uh, Africa, around the Cape, and up into the Indian Ocean. They went as far as India. There's even evidence that Phoenician traders made it as far as the Western Hemisphere and North America. So they were a strong merchant power. Uh, they had established colonies in Sicily in Italy, Corsica, Sardinia Spain, Carthage the Carthaginians were cousins to the Phoenicians they were the, one of the first to develop an alphabet which is the root of the alphabet that we use today they were a technologically advanced culture and they had pipes that moved water and they had indoor water uh, in the, running water in their homes but Jezebel was degenerate like everyone else in her home nation. See, technological advance and moral and ethical and spiritual advance don't go hand in hand. So our fourth point, Ahab was married to one of the most beautiful women of his day, but she was evil. Fifth point, Ahab was weak and under the influence of his wife, and so he built a temple to Baal in Samaria. And another temple to the goddess of love, Astarte. And so there they practiced the phallic cult and fertility rituals and temple and ritual uh, prostitution. Baal Baal was the storm god. And of course in an agricultural environment, you all know agriculture around here, what do you need? Rain. Why is it raining this week? It's supposed to be summer. We're here to visit. It immediately turns gray and cloudy but the farmers love it see that's true in all agricultural environments the farmers love the rain and so what they would do in this sexual perversion of fertility worship is they would go in and in the temples engage in sex thinking that the gods would imitate them and as a result of that the divine fertility there would be rain and they would have productive crops now think about what they're doing here just stop a minute and think about this What they're doing is they're trying to manipulate the gods to give them productivity. They want to be productive and wealthy. More crops, more money. It's just another form of the health and wealth gospel. I mean, these guys teaching the health and wealth gospel today are just a modern version of the old fertility religion. They're just not having sex in the temple. Well, wait a minute. We forgot about a few of those scandals back in the uh, 80s and 90s. So, anyhow, that's all it is. It is just another version. It is as pagan as anything that they were involved in in ancient Israel. And Christians are falling for this left and right. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're not stupid. And unfortunately, there's too many. See, we're getting the pastors we deserve... And we deserve the pastors we're getting because we don't want doctrine anymore in this country, just like in the northern kingdom. Now, when Jezebel came in, she brought 450 priests with her. She had a nice little dowry, didn't she? 450 priests to start watching everybody and creating a tyranny of Religion in the northern kingdom. But everybody loved it. They looked at Ahab, and he was handsome, and he's brilliant, and he's a political leader and manipulator, and a military uh, general who had victory on several occasions against the Syrians. And so they loved him. They didn't care what his character was, they loved him because he was producing pros- what appeared to be prosperity. For them, and so they followed him and Jezebel into idolatrous worship. Well, that gives us a pretty good idea about what was going on in the northern kingdom at this particular time. Now, there's another interesting thing that happens in verse 34. This is another little insight into the character and culture in the northern kingdom. Verse 34, we read, In his days, that is in the days of Ahab, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. Now, Heel's this contractor development developer from Bethel. And remember, Jericho has just been a pile of rubble ever since the Jews marched around it seven times and blew their trumpets. And the walls fell down, and they defeated the, the inhabitants of Jericho and burned the city and it's been sitting that way, now it's 800, it's been that way for 600 years. Now, just, just look around sometimes, some of you have got a little land, and see how long it takes for nature to reclaim uh, rubble, if it's not being constantly watched. It doesn't take long for the weeds and the vines and the stickers and the brambles to grow over all the, all the rocks and all the rubble. So there wasn't a whole lot left of of Jericho. The dirt had silted in, and and you just had this big mound. Today they call it a tell. And they go dig in those tells uh, for archaeological discoveries. But that's all that was left. But there was a curse. God said, if anybody rebuilds Jericho, I'm going to take the life of his oldest son, and when he finishes, I'm going to take the life of his youngest son. And that's in Joshua chapter 6. Verse 26. So Heel of Bethel decides, you know, there's this great plot of land here, and I bet I can level it out and build a new city and develop it, put in a whole new housing development here and sell it and make a lot of money. And either he's ignorant of the curse or he's aware of the curse, and it doesn't matter because success is more important than his family. Now, doesn't that sound modern? His own personal success and material wealth is more important than the lives of his children. And now it also could be, and some people think this is true, that we just don't have enough evidence, but it would fit the times that when he started the construction process, he dedicated it to the gods and he sacrificed his oldest son, and then when it was over with... In gratitude to the gods, he sacrificed the youngest son. That's a possible interpretation, but it's more likely that as he started, God took the life of the oldest one, and when he finished, God took the life of the youngest one. But what it shows is that they didn't care about human life, had no value. The only thing that mattered was ease of living, material gain, and possessions, and success, and it didn't matter what it cost his Family so that gives us a background and a picture of what Elijah is going up against, and it's not too different from what we see in our culture today now we're back to our starting point seventeen one Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead now we don't really know where Elijah was originally from. He's called a Tishbite and there's a guess that Tishbe was over on the what's called the Transjordan on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan over in the area now that would be port, part of Jordan. And uh, he was a settler there. That's the word that's used there for inhabitants of Gilead, not an inhabitant. He's more of a settler like in the Uh, American West, you'd have people who'd move west and they'd be the original pioneers or settlers the area of Gilead was roughly unsettled, it was a frontier area, it was rugged it was uh, hilly it uh, wasn't developed it wasn't an agricultural area and so he lived there so that is a picture of him this is an outdoorsman, a guy who's rough a guy who's able to handle the elements and that's the picture we see of Elijah, in fact when one guy in my church said that, well, you're going to go teach on Elijah. Now, if you're going to do it the way they do it today in all the big churches, then you're going to have to go get your sheepskin out of, out of storage, and you're going to have to put on your sheepskin loincloth and your sandals because that's how the people in these big modern churches do it, is they're going to act it all out. They're not going to give you any doctrine. They're just going to act it out. And so uh, that's the kind of guy that uh, Elijah was. He was a rugged outdoorsman. And now there's another view that I think has some merit to it. And the only difference between the term Tishbite and the word that is used for inhabitants is that instead of that first letter or first vowel I in Tish, you have Tosh. Toshbi, that's inhabitants, from Yashav meaning to dwell. And so it could mean Elijah the settler or the pioneer of the settlers of Gilead. That possibly could be the interpretation. The problem is we just don't have enough data. But we do know that he lived on the west side of the Jordan in Gilead, and he came out of nowhere. This isn't somebody who is part of the uh, royal family like Isaiah was later on. He's not someone who is part of aristocracy like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. This is someone who is probably uh, more of the blue-collar class, out working uh, as an agricultural laborer or a farmer, and he has given the gift of prophecy and is called by God to perform this particular uh, ministry. So he comes to Ahab, and he starts off and he says, As the Lord God of Israel lives. Now, this is an important phrase to pay attention to because he's drawing a contrast. As the Lord, as Yahweh, God of Israel lives, and the implication is Baal doesn't. He's just an idol of metal, stone, or wood. But the Lord God of Israel lives. For Elijah, Yahweh was a personal reality. In contrast to these dead idols of wood, metal, and stone, You can have a personal relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's the distinction of the Scripture, is that the God of the Bible is a personal and infinite God. He's not the infinite God, the transcendent God of deism that just sort of winds everything up and leaves. He is a God who's capable of personal relationship and wants to have a personal relationship with His creatures. So He is both infinite and personal. And this is the challenge of the Scriptures for believers of both Old and New Testament, is that we know God, that we grow in our understanding of Him, that we learn who He is and develop a relationship with Him. Now, that's really hard to do today, and we have people doing all kinds of phony things in churches to create these relationships, because we live in a culture today when most people don't know how to have a relationship. They can't have a relationship with their spouse or with their kids because they're working Fourteen hours a day, and they leave at five thirty in the morning, and they get home at eight o'clock at night. They never do anything with their family because they're always busy. The husbands working, the wives working, the kids are in school all day. They got them in soccer and ballet and piano lessons and drama lessons, and nobody ever sees anybody and visits with anybody and talks to anybody. Nobody knows how to have a relationship, so we're going to have a relationship by God, and we're going to stand around sing a bunch of hymns and our, our. Excuse, not him, excuse me. We're going to sing a bunch of choruses that just focus on me, 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 and I, I, I. And we're going to all feel good about God and go home and say, well, now we're developing a relationship with God. And see, we don't know the first thing about Him because we can't study the Word. And so we can know about God. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 3:10 that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And he's not talking about miracles there. He's understanding the dynamic omnipotence of God and seeing that in the reality of his own spiritual life. Daniel said it this way, "...the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits." The believer who grows to spiritual maturity is going to be able to trust God, claim promise... And perform in many different ways and have an impact on its culture like Elijah did. Second Chronicles sixteen, nine. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. So he understands who God is. This is the God before whom I stand. This is the role of the Old Testament prophet. The Old Testament prophet was like a prosecuting attorney. He is, taking, he is staking out a legal case against Israel. What's the basis for the case? The basis for the case was the Mosaic covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant was a contract. It was like a constitution for the nation. God said, here's the law. This is your Constitution. There's a preamble to the Constitution just as we have. Their preamble was the Ten Commandments. It summarized the whole framework for legislation within the law. And that's the law that came over into Western culture as a result of Christianity and impacted and changed all the legal structures in Western Europe. And what made Western Europe what it is today is the Judeo-Christian concept of law and the rule of law that didn't come out of Western European paganism, but it came out of Exodus. And when you take it out and you say, it's not okay to have it in the courtroom, we've got to put it out on the front yard... Next year it's going to be out on the curb. Next year it's going to be across the street. And what you're doing is you're saying that ultimate authority doesn't derive from God. Ultimate authority derives from what goes on in this courtroom, divorced from God, and the courts become the tyranny that destroy the freedom in a nation. And that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in. You go to one of two extremes when you get away from the absolutes of Scripture. The first extreme is anarchy, and this is what we studied in Judges. Remember that two-year study in Judges. Everyone did, There was what was the key verse? There's no God in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when you take God out of the picture, everybody's going to do what's right in their eyes. So you become a king, and 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 everybody thinks they're a little God, and you just have anarchy. Well, in that situation, everything's just going to fall apart. So what has to happen? Some strong-armed individual is going to come in, and he's going to enforce his will on everybody, and you go to the other extreme, and you've got tyranny. And you're always going to have some government that's going to tyrannically impose itself on the people and destroy freedom. And so they had the Mosaic Law, and it's part of the Mosaic Law. There were promises that God made that if you obey the law, I will bless you and I will do this, 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 and this for you. If you disobey the law, then I am going to punish you. And there were five different stages or cycles of judgment or discipline that were outlined in Leviticus chapter 26. We'll go over it in a minute. Related to what God would do if they were disobedient. And the prophet's job was to come when the nation was disobedient and say, you have violated the law in this area, in this area, in this area, in this area, and God is going to be true to His Word, and this is the judgment that's coming. And they would announce that judgment. So this is not something that he's doing just because he sat out in the wilderness and had his quiet time with God in the morning and read through the Mosaic Law and said, you know, we're screwing up here. I think I'm going to go tell Ahab about it. That's not what he's doing. This isn't something that he just took on himself. He's not arrogant. Just the opposite. This man is is a humble individual. He's teachable. He's under the authority of God. And he's carrying out uh, God's command. And what he announces is that there shall not be dew or rain these years except at my word. And I'm representing God. Now, who's the God of the dew and the rain in the northern kingdom now? It's Baal. Baal's the God, the thunder God, the storm God. And so this is, from the very beginning, this is a conflict between and a challenge from the God of the Bible to the false God of the Baal worshipers. And God's saying, put up or shut up. See, it starts here and it culminates in the great challenge up on Mount Carmel. And God is showing that he is the only God and that what they're worshiping is a false God. And this drought that he's announcing is part of the fourth cycle of discipline that God had contractually informed the Jews of. And I've got two verses. I want to go there first. Deuteronomy 11:16 to 17. Moses said, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. What's he saying? Watch out, don't fall into the trap of idolatry and serve other gods, because something's going to happen. The wrath of God's justice is going to fall on you, and then the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heaven, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. And that was just a summary of Leviticus twenty six, eighteen to twenty. And that passage re- reads: And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Now, in James five seventeen, when we were reading about Elijah praying, what was Elijah praying? Lord, you made a promise back here in this contractual agreement with Israel, Leviticus twenty six that if they got involved in idolatry, you were going to make the sky like uh, iron and the earth like bronze. That's what he's praying every single day. And that's what he's announcing in 1 Kings 17.1. He is just pronouncing the judgment that God had promised in his word. So he announces this and gets out of there. And God uh, hides him. For another day And God's going to do two things He's going to hide him and protect him He's going to take him to another level of school He's made it through his his bachelor's program And now he's going to get his master's degree In trusting God out in the wilderness So the word of the Lord came to him in verse 2 And said get away from here And go eastward Hide by the brook Kareth Which flows into the Jordan Now here we have a map There we go Here we have a map, and I have uh, put on the map in yellow over here the location where they think uh, Tishbi was, if that's indeed a village. So he was from somewhere over on this. This uh, This little blue area right here is the Sea of... In the Old Testament, it was the Sea of Canareth, In the New Testament, it's the Sea of Galilee. And flowing out of it to the south is the Jordan River. That's the blue line. And it flows on down to the Dead Sea. Jericho is down here at the base of the map, and Jerusalem is just off the bottom of the screen. So up here on the eastern side of the Jordan, you have where where Gilead was located. And Tishbe is over there. And your major rivers are the uh, Yebak, which is down here and the Yarmouk, which is up here in the north. And Kereth was an intermittent stream that flowed during the rainy season but didn't have much water in the dry season. And it's located somewhere in between. So we put Kereth somewhere in this particular uh, area. And so his first journey was to go from Tishbe to Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. And then immediately after his announcement, he heads to the book Brook Kareth, where he is hidden out in rugged territory. I've spent a few times like that in my life out in central Texas and up in Colorado, rugged areas where nobody's going to find you. You can find a nice little spring, uh, Spring Fred Creek, and you can just relax. It's very quiet, very nice. You can enjoy the flora, the fauna, the birds, the fish, everything that's around you. But in a time of drought, this is all going to dry up. And as, uh, as the drought increased, the more and more birds would come to this spring-fed creek. But as the spring began to dry up, fewer and fewer birds and other animals would come there for water. And before long, there was nothing coming there other than the raven that was feeding Elijah every morning and every night. And before long, the water uh, dried up. Now, let's back up a couple of verses. So there's a promise that God makes. This is the core of the faith rest drill, remember, that we trust in God's promise. But it's not only a test of God's promise, it's a test of Elijah's orientation to grace. Because grace means that God is always going to provide everything you need. Now here's a test, because you're sitting there and every day the water level in the spring's getting a little lower. You not only have to trust God, you have to trust in the sufficiency of His grace. And God's not a God who's going to say, okay, here's a game plan. We're going to stay here until the water dries up. And then just in time, I'm going to move you someplace else. No, God's not going to tell you what the future holds. God says He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for somebody. He's going to provide a pastor. He's going to provide whatever the need is. But for right now, you're going to just sit and rest and trust Him. And you're going to rely upon His grace. So there's a promise to Elijah in verse 4, And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Now this is a real test of humility for Elijah. Because a raven is an unclean animal under the Mosaic law. If he touched the raven, he would be ceremonially unclean. Well, that's not going to bother Elijah a whole lot, because he's not headed to the temple any day soon. But he's going to have his food brought by the raven. There's nothing indicating in the Scripture that you can't eat a steak that the raven brought you. You just can't touch the raven or eat the raven. And that's a good thing because you don't want to eat the waiter when you go out to a restaurant. (laughs) So, God promises that the ravens are going to provide for you. there. Now, I imagine the first two or three days, this was just sort of an interesting scenario. as He woke up in the morning, so where's breakfast? not here yet. God said, well, you know, I was going to let you sleep late. The bird's going to show up with breakfast at 9 o'clock. Just wait a while. <laughs> you know, afternoon comes, no lunch. It's just in the morning and the evening. You know, there's always somebody comes along and tries to go to the Old Testament for, the, for a diet, lo, diet law. In fact, they've got this book, The Maker's Diet, out there right now. and They probably had some good things to say about nutrition, but everybody wants to go to the Mosaic Law to substantiate this. But I don't hear anybody ever going here and saying, well, you know, you only need to eat twice a day. Breakfast, late afternoon dinner, no lunch, no midnight snack, just twice a day. Well, that's the situation here. So the response of, of Elijah is given in verse 5 and 6 where he is going to do exactly what God said to do. See, his guidance is from the Lord. He's doing what the Word of God says to do. Now, we don't have God speaking verbally to us today. We have the written Word, and this is where we find divine guidance. It's only in the written Word. God's not going to speak to you. He's not going to be that, we're going to see this if we get there, this little, still, small voice of God that speaks to Elijah out of the whirlwind uh, later on. And that is nothing that's out of the whirlwind, not out of your heart. People just can't read the Bible. It doesn't say listen to the still, small voice in your heart. You know, and every Baptist you run into says you've got to listen to that still, small voice in your heart. Go be a Mormon. You know, the Mormons are the ones who are interested in the burning in your bosom. It's not these, these uh, 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 Christians. It goes by what the Word of God says. He believes in something objective, not this inner subjective voice. So he responds to the word of God, and he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. Now, everything's going good, but everything dries up. So the key idea here is he's trusting God. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen says that he that believeth shall not make haste. He is trusting in the Lord on a day-by-day basis. Now, the tests... In First Kings 17, all deal with one issue, and that's grace, specifically logistical grace. Now logistics is a word. Logistics is a word that refers to basic supplies. You talk about logistics for any military campaign. it's basically supply. Uh, companies talk about logistics. they really borrow the word from, from the military. But the idea is that God's always going to supply what you need to stay alive food, shelter, clothing. God's going to take care of you. He's also going to provide what you need for spiritual nourishment. He's going to provide the Word of God. It may not be the way you think it ought to be. You know, how many times have you gone through life and you didn't get jobs you thought you ought to get? Or you weren't taken care of physically the way you thought you ought to be taken care of or live in the house you thought you should be living in or, have, uh, or whatever it may be. But God's going to provide for the spiritual nourishment of this congregation one way or the other. And just because you don't have a physical pastor yet, don't get in a hurry. One of the largest Baptist churches in Houston waited three and a half years before they got a pastor. This is a huge church, First Baptist of Houston. So you don't want to settle. You don't want to settle. You want to get the best. And God will supply it. And you will know it when the time comes, but you don't want to get in a hurry. Isaiah forty thirty one. 31 We need to wait upon the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall walk and not be weary. They shall run and not faint. James 1.24, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith will produce endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. God is going to provide everything that we need. This is the principle in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. The bottom line's the important one. My grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected. That is brought to maturity or completion in weakness. God's grace is always going to supply everything we need, no matter how difficult or how hopeless the situation may be. And each day Elijah watched that water level Get lower and lower and lower, and each day he had to trust God a little more. And a principle we learn from this is that if you're going to be grace oriented, you have to trust in the faithfulness of God. That God is going to be true to his word, and that he is going to be faithful to his word, and that he is not going to waver one little bit. So Elijah goes through, goes through this period of isolation. And it's a time of testing to see if he is willing to tr- trust God even when there's just a teaspoon of water left in that, w- that spring and God still hasn't told him where to go next. So he's learning to be teachable. To be teachable, you have to have genuine humility. To have genuine humility, you have to be oriented to God's grace and oriented to God's authority and that God is going to take care of you. But that's the first test. And now we have the second test, another command that comes in verse 9. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Now this is up on the coast in Phoenicia. God says, okay, I've taken care of you for the last year. You've been out here on the brook. You've been hidden out in the, in the um, ravine there and taken care of. Now we're going to take you and we're going to move you right into the heart of the enemy's territory." Remember, this is where Jezebel's from. Daddy runs his territory. Everybody's looking for him. The most wanted man in all of this part of the world was Elijah. Everybody's out looking for him. they got the armies looking for him. Everybody's got a posse out looking for him. They want to, he, he's the number one public enemy right now. And so God says, okay, now we're really going to test you. We're going to move you from this place out in the boonies to right in the heart of the enemy's territory, and we're going to take care of you. Not only that, but I'm going to have you taken care of by a widow. We're not talking about somebody who's got a lot of money here, folks. We're going to have you taken care of by a widow, not just any widow. This is a Gentile widow in enemy territory. So this is just another opportunity to trust the Lord. So there's a promise. 9b, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So the lessons applied. He responds. He trusts God. He listens and does what the Word of God says to do. Now, I'm not going to go through every detail in the story. It's familiar to many of you. But he goes to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, there's a widow there gathering sticks. She's just picking up a few little sticks, making a little fire, and she's going to cook some bread at home and die. You know, she's not too positive. This woman didn't... Didn't listen to any of the uh, modern preachers today or teaching you how to uh, have a positive outlook on life and how to uh, uh, handle everything always be optimistic. Uh, she is uh, pessimistic. And uh, so he shows up and there's this widow gathering sticks. He calls her and says, give me a little water in your jar that I can drink. And as she was going to get it, he called her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. Now, there's something positive about this woman. She may not have much, but she's got some level of grace orientation because she's willing to share what's almost gone with Elijah. But she's not real happy about it either. She said, as the Lord your God lives, notice, not the Lord my God, but the Lord your God, so this isn't even a believer. As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread and only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar... And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Real optimistic. So he says, don't fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. She's thinking there's not going to be any afterward. After I use that little half a cup of flour and a couple of teaspoons of water, that's all there's going to be. So she went in, made the bread, and then he promises her that the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. God's going to be the God who supplies. So once again, he's got a logistical grace test to trust God day by day. He doesn't give us more. This reminds me of the Jews when they're out in the wilderness; they got they were to take enough manna every morning just for that day. God's not going to take care of you tomorrow. Today he's going to take care of you today, and your needs for today are going to be taken care of. And so he's provided for, and this is covered in First uh, 1 Kings 1713 through 16. The bowl of joy, uh, the, the bowl a flour is not exhausted, neither is the jar of oil empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. So once again, God always supplies. But in the midst of this, there's going to be a test. And it's a significant test, uh, more so for the widow, because her only son is going to die. Less so for Elijah, but I'm sure since he lived there with them that he uh, came to know this uh, young man. And, and so there was something going on there, and be, the young man becomes sick and dies. And so she, of course, you get this undertone of blaming Elijah for everything. And she says, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? See, if you hadn't come here, you wouldn't die. You have come to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And so she blames Elijah for her son dying. And then look at his response in verse 19. And he said to her, give me your son... So he took him out of her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, have you also brought this tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And then in verse 21 he prays that, for, to the Lord to revive this child, to resuscitate the child. And the Lord hears his prayer and responds, and the child comes back to life. Now this isn't normative. You always have some charismatic who thinks, gosh, let's go do this. Well, you know, it only happened two or three times in the whole Bible. It didn't happen for every Christian. It only happened for some unique people like Elijah and Paul and Jesus. We're not talking about everyday believers. And there was always a special reason behind it. And so he brings the child uh, back to life. And this is a great authenticating miracle. And in verse 24, the woman says, "...now by this I know that you are a man of God." And that the word of the Lord, notice, it's not the word of your God anymore. It's the word of the Lord is in your mouth is the truth. And at this point, I believe that this woman is finally saved. Now, there's three lessons we learned from chapter 17. If we're going to be effective servants of the Lord, the first is that we have to maintain that moment-by-moment dependence on the Lord, that radical dependence on the Lord that we get from the faith rest drill. Now, if the faith rest drill always focuses on something, we believe something that God gave us. His Word. That means you have to know His Word. It's not just faith. It's not just sitting around going, well, I'm going to believe God's going to take care of me. Great. Any idiot can just say that. You've got to know promises. You've got to know principles. You've got to know specifics. Uh, Elijah's not just operating on some mystic concept of faith. Second thing, there's grace orientation. We have to learn how God's going to supply us, where He's going to supply us, how He's going to do it, and that it's not based on who and what we are, but on who and what He is. And it's always going to be enough, that is what sufficient means, but it's not always going to be in an overabundance. It may be. His grace is overabundant, but He's just going to give us what we need. And then third, we need to be taking in the Word of God constantly Consistently, day in, day out. Because it's only the Word of God that's going to build strength in our soul so that we can stand in the gap like Elijah and be men and women who can handle a crisis. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this time we've had together to fellowship around the study of Your Word and to be reminded of these great principles in the life of Elijah. Father, we pray that we can be like Him in that we stand firm on Your Word and let Your Word be the strength of our life and of our soul and that no matter what we're faced with in life, no matter which direction our nation goes, we know that there are those in this country that will never bow the kneel to the Baals of secular humanism or Darwinism or any of the other isms that are the sophisticated mental, idols of our day father we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge that the holy spirit has brought us from your word this evening we pray this in christ's name amen